In midsummer, a young, idealistic generation had descended on the city. In strange clothes, with strange habits, and indifferent to the differences, because they came in a spirit of peace and love. From the parks came singing and impromptu musical performances by amateur musicians, impassioned if not always entirely talented. The same could be said for the painters presenting their work in the open air, in a festival atmosphere. Debates over politics sprang up freely around the city. Max Frankel of the New York Times wrote of the scene, What is amazing is that there should be so many defenders of the new and radical. A 17-year-old from California described the scene years later, saying, Day and night, people thronged the boulevards with instruments, with flowers. By night that summer, love erupted spontaneously among the revelers. Couples who had just met distanced themselves from the buildings, in the dark, in the fields, in the bushes, knowing perfectly well what they were doing. It was a summer of love, and its implications would define a generation and change the course of society forever. But this was not 1967 in San Francisco. The things I've described are from 1957 in Moscow, capital of the Soviet Union. And you are in the Cold War vault. For peace and friendship was the motto, and it certainly defined the summer. It was the 28th of July, 1957, and 34,000 students from 130 countries descended on Moscow, hosted by an additional 60,000 invited Russian youth for the 6th World Festival of Youth and Students, commonly remembered as the Moscow Youth Festival, and remembered by many people who lived it with a sly smile, and perhaps even a mention of the Deti Festivalia, or Children of the Festival, which is not a reference to the revelers themselves, but to the unexpected wave of offspring nine months later, usually mysteriously biracial. To historians of all stripes, it is also remembered as a fully sanctioned cultural festival that had the unintended consequence of creating a cultural rupture that would leave the Soviet Union forever changed. Not only changed, but the festival set Soviet society on a path that would end with its own destruction. But how? In the midst of the Cold War, just five years after the death of Stalin, with the Iron Curtain well established, with the red menace on McCarthy's mind, how did Moscow experience a revolutionary summer of love? For that, we'll go back to 1945. Part 1. A Festival of Youth 
The World Youth Festival had its origins in 1945 at the World Youth Conference in London, where the World Federation of Democratic Youth was created. That's a lot of youth. The original intent in the immediate aftermath of World War II, and I do mean so immediate that Berlin was still smoldering, was to create a unified generational front to prevent a recurrence of war and stop the revival of fascism. It was agreed, somehow among the thousands of participants, that a festival should be planned for the summer of 1947. And so it was. The World Festival of Youth and Students was inaugurated in Prague in July 1947 to commemorate the suppression of students in 1939 after demonstrations against the German occupation, or so the legend goes. It was a four-week affair that hosted 17,000 participants at its height, with athletic competitions and a stadium-based inaugural event with a raising of a new flag and the playing of an orchestral anthem. While it is potentially heartwarming to imagine that this massive event and those after were organized, funded, and executed by the post-war youth, whatever that may mean in this context, full financial and logistical support was provided by two organizations, the World Federation of Democratic Youth and the International Union of Students. While they were ostensibly non-governmental organizations devoted to the good of all mankind, they received funding primarily from the Soviet Union and its satellites. Though it should be said that in 1947, things weren't so clear-cut as they would later be. The point here is that the organizers of the events were closely allied to the Soviet state. But it would be too simplistic to say that the entire endeavor was simply a propaganda showpiece. Though it was, in the way that the Soviet and American exhibitions of the 1950s were as well. But for the Soviet Union, the whole endeavor was worth the extensive organizational effort because it had the goal of expanding beyond the communist bloc and creating something truly global. If the event could reach out to Asia, Latin America, and even North America and the United States, it would become a world event in a category with the Olympics, with all of the prestige that would go along with it. And of course, an enraptured audience of youth subject to the Soviet message, subtle or otherwise, was a very appealing opportunity indeed. And so the organizers had to ask themselves, and I don't mean the youth, I mean the Soviet-backed organizing bodies, how can we successfully bring in participants from the outside world, from beyond the Iron Curtain? The usual overtly political tone of a pioneer movement summer camp just wouldn't work. It had to be more subtle and more inclusive. The best way to do this, it seemed, would be to present three branches to the festival, events organized around the political, the cultural, and the athletic. There was no way around the political dimension of a massive festival sponsored by the communist world. But in the interest of making it a world festival, the politics were presented with a gentler hand. Parades emphasized the international nature of the gathering and the ideals of friendship, 
all through the gentle lens of global socialism. The political seminars that were offered disseminated ideas in broad strokes, ideas like peace and unity, as far from the appearance of indoctrination as was possible. The cultural events represented the real substance of the festival program. Music, dance, and art from each of the participating nations, some in the public space, but some presented as major spectacles representing individual nations and their national repertoire. But what the organizers imagined would be the true centerpiece of the festival was the competitive athletic competition, a set of medaled games to rival the Olympics. While there were awards for the cultural events as well, these were, like the music, dance, and art itself, culturally arbitrary and taken by the participants as it was intended by the organizers a cultural exchange in an exhibition atmosphere. But the athletic events would be the perfect opportunity to truly demonstrate the superiority of the people of the communist world, an opportunity to dominate the field. Those who wanted the competition to act as a showcase for superiority wanted to create sporting events sanctioned by their governing bodies with the particular aim of creating opportunities for records But there was a conflict. While the Soviets wanted to use the festival as a venue for competition, the participants, and this time I do mean the youth, just wanted to play some games. The festival had been born at the World Youth Conference in London in 1945, literally amid the rubble of war, and the participants had grown up in that war. It shouldn't be surprising that the overwhelming sentiment of the planners and participants was simply that international competition was so early 40s. In short, they were done with it. This was remedied in later years by the fortuitous introduction of a separate set of events that happened to be held at the same time in the same place, known as the World Student Games. If you were a somewhat savvy outside observer, maybe with a little prescience, you might have seen the smallest hint of the problem to come. These thousands of festival attendees, with no particular stake in international competition, to the point of rejecting the Olympic model of national sports-based proxy wars, would have to cast their attentions elsewhere. Where might they have preferred to spend their time? The political and the cultural. And we will get to that in a minute. Part 2. The Death of Stalin and the Thaw When Stalin died in 1953, it brought an end to his particular flavor of authoritarian oppression. I won't say it ushered in anything in particular, but the ice on the Volga broke. It would still take a while to melt. When you know it, my metaphor works, because when Khrushchev replaced Stalin at the helm of the Soviet world, he instituted a period that is often called the Thaw or the Khrushchev Thaw. This refers to a general set of policies between the death of Stalin and Khrushchev's ouster in 1964. It was characterized by a more relaxed state of censorship and repression, the amnesty and rehabilitation of many citizens who had been sent to the gulags by Stalin, and a policy of peaceful coexistence with other nations. 
You can take that with a grain of salt, if you wish, but that was the intent. During this time, the Soviet Union saw a remarkable reopening to international trade, exchange, and general cooperation. After a few cautious early cultural exchanges with the United States, including a tour of a U.S. company of Porgy and Bess and the Boston Symphony Orchestra in 1957, the Soviet Union went all in. With Khrushchev's new openness in full swing, Moscow was set to host the sixth World Festival of Youth and Students, the famed Moscow Youth Festival of 1957. What led up to that festival had been a series of these events that had occurred since the first in 1947, in capitals around the communist world. Let's look at those very briefly, because it should be made clear that these had all been highly regimented, overtly propagandistic events that were far less interested in exchange than with education and indoctrination. When the Soviet Union agreed to host the 1957 festival in Moscow, there had been a decade of precedent that indicated that they would get a lot of propaganda bang for their ruble. In Prague, 1947, the slogan for the festival was Youth Unite, Forward for Lasting Peace. In Budapest, 1949, it was Youth Unite, Forward for Lasting Peace, Democracy, National Independence, and a Better Future for the People. Then in East Berlin, 1951, the Berlin Wall hadn't gone up yet, though. It was for peace and friendship against nuclear weapons. Bucharest, 1953, heard the chant, No, our generation will not serve death and destruction. I would have thought that was a given. Then, the Warsaw 1955 festival had the slogan, with all of the unapologetic irony that is possible here, for peace and friendship against the aggressive imperialist pacts. For reference, it was May 1955 that saw the formation of the Warsaw Pact, also in Warsaw. And so, in 1956, planning began in earnest for the Sixth Festival. And in the capital of the Soviet Union, and indeed the capital of the communist world, it would have to be the biggest and most extravagant yet. Part 3. Preparations In advance of the festival, the U.S. State Department issued a warning that the Moscow Youth Festival was entirely an exercise in propaganda. The official State Department declaration said the primary aim of the Youth Festival is to enlist world youth in support of Moscow's foreign policies, and that the festival amounts to a heavily subsidized foreign vacation for those who attend. Despite the State Department's misgivings, the U.S. didn't put any restrictions on the Americans who planned to attend the festival. The Southeast Asian Treaty Organization issued a warning for Asian youth attending the festival in the form of a pamphlet titled Communist Subversion of Youth which went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 almost immediately. The pamphlet said, The festival will be used by its organizers to promote greater receptiveness to communist propaganda in the free world and to offset the loss to Soviet prestige caused by the events in Hungary. 
The Soviet suppression of the Hungarian Revolution of the previous year was very much on the minds of many attendees, and indeed the non-communist world generally. Despite their best efforts, copies of the pamphlet were only sent to Thailand and the Philippines. The pamphlet was actually refused by the United States, Britain, France, New Zealand, and Pakistan. So I was joking about it going to the top of the Billboard Hot 100, because there was no Billboard Hot 100 until summer 1958. Also, it was a pamphlet, not a rock and roll single. Moving on. But there was no real meaningful objection to attendance of the festival by non-communist bloc citizens. With the exception of Sudan, that was overtly blocking travel to Moscow for the youth festival, there were no other national prohibitions. None that I can identify, anyway. And none that Nicholas Rutter has found either, a historian at the Woodrow Wilson Center who has gone into the archives on this matter. And as for Sudan, that delegation ended up being the largest from Africa, with 100. 20 were attending universities outside of Sudan, but the 60 who defied the government ban were prosecuted when they got home. The United States had its apparently misguided recommendations from the State Department, but even that guidance ended with a comment on the inclusive nature of the event to diffuse fears. This is in all likelihood because it was clear to most that in the overall intellectual, cultural, and likely amorous milieu of the event, there might be more to be gained than lost from a propaganda standpoint. The Soviets had a decade of precedent to show that their public relations goals could be met, but they weren't blind to what made the West so open to the whole project. They understood the risks and the rewards, and the party did its best to mitigate this as part of its preparations. As fresh flowers were planted and Moscow was slathered in bright coats of colorful paint, the Soviet government had words of caution and advice for its 60,000 youth participants. Printed in the pages of the Moscow youth newspaper, Moskovsky Komsomolets, were suggestions on how to be hospitable while retaining dignity. It said, Hospitality does not mean obsequiousness. We speak here about good Soviet fellows and girls who are sometimes easily carried away, and who sometimes, because of their lack of acquaintance with things, consider an ordinary foreign thing to be a wonder. These wonderful foreign things might include jewelry, cufflinks, and cigarette cases and lighters, at which the Communist Party entreated one should not stare with too much enthusiasm, because the nation's great electric power stations are worth any number of wondrous cigarette lighters a foreigner may possess. These items might appear as strange as the foreign customs the young people were sure to encounter during the festival, like whistling. Whistling, in the bizarre topsy-turvy world of the United States, denoted approval of something, while in the civilized world, it meant disapproval. 
it would be unacceptably inhospitable for Moscow's young people not to know the names of the Kremlin's five gate towers. The article offers a quick refresher. And on par with this historical hospitability, the young hosts should also know the whole history of Moscow's automobile plant. At the urging of the Communist Party, city police and hospitality workers were also instructed to learn the phrases, how do you do, or s'il vous plaît, in no particular order. The coming festival dominated Moscow life in the months leading up to the events. Its constant mention on Radio Moscow was exceeded historically only by the death of Stalin and the 20th Party Congress the year before. 56% of all of Moscow's radio broadcasts in all languages were devoted to the festival during its two weeks. The people of the city were jubilant about the preparations, not just the fresh paint and flowers, but the more permanent additions. New sports centers, a stadium, a variety of concert spaces, and housing were all constructed for the festival. The roads were modernized as well, which left the citizenry with the general sentiment that they wished the festival could be repeated every year. In all, the Soviet government spent between 100 million and 150 million U.S. dollars on the event, and its legacy, in the form of new construction, lasted for decades. Part 4. The Event On the 28th of July, the opening ceremonies were held in Lenin Stadium with 60,000 spectators. Every significant official of the Soviet Communist Party was in attendance to give the complete official sanction to the festival. The massive parade of delegations churned through the stadium grounds, officiated by Khrushchev and Clement Voroshilov, the chairman of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet. What followed was a whirlwind of parades, pageants, sports competitions, dances, and cultural exhibitions. And that was really just what was on the official program. The festival organizers and the Soviet authorities tried their best to keep the delegates to that official schedule. Nearly every hour of the festival was scheduled. The organizers tried to keep the national delegations together and bus them from event to event. But, as you might expect would be the case, many young visitors to the big city decided to ditch their delegations, forget about the schedule, and set out on their own. At some point in each day, this seems to have become the rule rather than the exception. The weather was perfect, the population of Moscow welcoming and friendly, and by all accounts, any foreign visitor could feel comfortable wandering for hours, assured of meeting Muscovites and people from all over the world. In the heart of Moscow, Gorky Street, once and now again Tverskaya, had been decorated in lights and flowers and transformed every night into a street party with live music and dancing. One American festival attendee, a 17-year-old from California, remembered day and night people thronged the boulevards in national costumes with instruments, with flowers, with arms full of gifts. 
the Russians threw themselves into the festival as if every stranger were a kinsman returning home. You have to remember that in 1957, any non-Russian on the streets of Moscow was extremely alien. A visceral shock, as one historian put it. And so, to be beset by tens of thousands, freely mingling throughout the city, threw the Muscovite population into a frenzy of cultural revelation. One recollection of the festival, by a teenaged Russian attendee, was that the foreign delegates were casually dressed, young and joyful. This surprise stemmed from the fact that they were none of the types that the Soviet media had portrayed. Bourgeois fat cats, racist thugs, or movie stars. They were, as he put it, thrillingly ordinary. Ordinary as they may have been, they were exotic in their normalcy. For whatever reasons, love was suddenly in the air. In the CNN documentary, The Cold War, the Soviet poet Evgeny Yevtushenko remembered the festival this way. How could I forget the Moscow Youth Festival? For the first time in my life, my socialist lips touched capitalist lips. Because I kissed one American girl, breaking any Cold War rules. Not only me, many of my friends too. They're doing the same too on the streets of Moscow in all the parks. Of course, the atmosphere became more heated as the days of the festival went on. The feeling of, and the acts of, sexual liberation I mentioned at the beginning of this story are from the recollections of the famed Russian jazz musician Alexei Kozlov, who was 21 years old during the festival that summer. He wrote in his memoir, At night, as it was getting dark, Crowds of young ladies from all over Moscow converged on the places where foreign delegates were staying, various student dorms and hotels on the outskirts of the city. Events developed with maximum speed. No wooing, no fake coquettishness. Couples who had just met quickly distanced themselves from the buildings, in the dark, in the fields, in the bushes, knowing perfectly well what they would be soon doing. On the ninth day of the festival, during a celebration of the young women in attendance, a holiday of girls, as it was called, a grand ball was held for 17,000 people in the central house of the Soviet army. In one room, newly composed orchestral songs celebrating women were played through the night. In another, poets read verse similarly in celebration of women. There was a fashion show and a combination cooking demonstration and restaurant where the delegates could learn about the cuisines of the Soviet Union. I did say this had 17,000 attendees. Well, it was so popular that the house of the Soviet army was beset by thousands more without tickets, and 1,500 more police and military were called up to guard the entrances. Of course, something needs to be said about the music at the festival. 
Because it was at the 1957 Youth Festival that Moscow and the wider communist world was introduced to what the Communist Party had officially dubbed a capitalist disease. Rock and roll. For the decade that would follow, arguably longer, the musical dilemma of the festival was mirrored in Soviet society. Because of the impromptu nature of so much of the musical fare at the festival, out in the streets, for instance, as opposed to performances in sanctioned events, the festival organizers and authorities found it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to regulate what was played and what was not, based on an ever-shifting notion of what was acceptable and what was not, because so many of the authorities had never heard rock and roll or the newer forms of jazz, and they didn't know exactly what they were trying to prohibit. This is what I mean by the mirror in Soviet society. As new trends and various capitalist diseases found their way into the youth culture, the authorities were forever playing a game of catch-up, banning music, literature, and visual art forms long after they had wormed their way into the minds of the Soviet youth. And God helped them when they heard their first electric guitars. The British delegation had brought electric guitars as part of their musical offering. But the authorities, the organizers and police, had literally never seen or heard the instrument before. Despite the intuition that it was definitely against Soviet morals, there was nothing that could be done to combat it. It was one of many infections the festival brought to Moscow that summer. Part 5. Smooth Sailing Not everything went as smoothly as the Moscow authorities would have had the world believe, but given the number of attending young people and local Muscovite hangers-on, it's remarkable that everything went as smoothly as it did. Politically, despite so many non-communists and such a significant number of anti-communists, the discourse was mostly civil, and so far as the official record goes, never devolved into fisticuffs. During the opening ceremony parade, the East German delegation marched with a banner that said, Germania. West Germany, declaring itself the true Germany, marched with a competing Germania banner. The antagonism continued through the festival, made worse by the fact that the East German and West German delegations were housed together and forced to eat together. According to the CIA, the West succeeded in winning several political converts from the East, while the East could not say the same for their brothers from the West. The Hungarians presented a significant political bump in the road. The CIA report on the festival contains a section called The Hungarian Delegation, the most puppet-like at the festival, which probably explains much of the problem. The Hungarian revolution of the previous year had started as a student protest, and so many of the more forward-thinking students had been killed or were in prison. The ones who attended the Moscow festival weren't just the ones who towed the party line. Many of the 1,100-strong delegation were actually secret police. They arrived with 22 and a half tons of pamphlets and were ready for a fight. 
During a prearranged meeting with the American participants, the Hungarians engaged in a kind of filibuster, preventing the Americans from debating or voicing any opinion at all. According to the CIA report, the Americans in the meeting became so disgusted with the Hungarians that they walked out in protest. The CIA concluded that, quote, had the Americans been prepared and skilled in debate, they probably could have held their own much better against the carefully indoctrinated Hungarians. In predictably contentious style, the Israelis couldn't decide on any official organization for their delegation to the festival, and so created two separate and competing delegations, one communist and the other non-communist. Nevertheless, they both agreed on their loyalty to Israel, and this posed a problem for the Soviet authorities. Those authorities and the festival organizers worked together using unapologetically overt means to sabotage the activities of both Israeli delegations. They were housed far out of the city center and given an ever-changing and usually incorrect event program. It didn't stop the enthusiasm of Moscow's Jewish population, however, who kept mobbing them wherever they went. Even when the delegations were sent away by the police from a distant rail station in a sealed train, somehow throngs of local Jews found out and mobbed the platform. As for other kinds of unrest, well, it's an absolute certainty that many crimes of various kinds went unreported or suppressed by the police, who wanted to maintain an illusion of peace, friendship, and total control. But the number and diversity of crimes a Westerner might expect in a crowd of at least 94,000, plus local Muscovites, is left to the imagination, with a very few actual incidents making it into the press coverage. The CIA's final analysis of the event determined that the Italian delegation of roughly 2,000 was the most ill-behaved of the national groups. Reports indicated that they refused to pay taxi fares, complained about food and service, and took many items from their hotel rooms as souvenirs. George Abrams, who was a recent Harvard Law graduate, really brought a lot of trouble down on himself. He was perhaps the most visible political agitator at the festival, but that had been his purpose in traveling to Moscow. He began by reading the United Nations report on what had happened in Hungary the previous year, which had been suppressed by the Soviet authorities. Eventually, he became something of a celebrity, developing what the New York Times called a personal following on the Red Square seminar circuit. Working through five or six interpreters at once, George Abrams conducted debates for hours at a time. During his days on the soapbox, and at least one day agitating from Lenin's mausoleum, the newspapers attacked him constantly. But the authorities never stopped him. But they never took their eyes off of him either. When the festival was over and it was time to leave, George Abrams was detained at the Moscow airport. He was told that there was, quote, some irregularity in his behavior, and that they didn't know if he would be given an exit visa. This must truly have been an enjoyable few hours of trolling for the Soviet police. 
According to George himself and the UP wire that carried the story, he was miraculously given permission to leave the Soviet Union with less than one minute before the plane left for Amsterdam. He was, he said, mightily relieved. I'm sure the police were mightily relieved to see him go. And then there's the story of another famous troublemaker. But I don't know what to make of this one. Reported multiple times in world media and drawing heavy accusations of conspiracy in Soviet media, the story of Stan Mumford shows up everywhere when researching the festival. In newspapers, yes, obviously, but also the CIA report, and years later in the congressional record of hearings related to Cuba, but only because his name was mentioned in the same article as a communist sympathizer who was being interrogated. Stan Mumford himself shows up in a picture in Life magazine and is quoted as saying he was anti-red, which makes this all the more interesting. Stan's story started on the day of the opening ceremonies, the 28th of July, when he was presumably lost on his own in Moscow trying to find the Lenin Stadium. Seeing a possible shortcut, he climbed a fence or scaled a wall and trespassed on the grounds of a factory. He almost made it, but not quite. Police descended on him, and he was held for four hours until they could find someone who spoke English. The police heard his story and confiscated the film in Stan's camera. They then asked him not to be angry with them. You can only imagine what kind of general orders from the higher-ups had come down to make even arrests a friendly experience during the festival. They told him that it was all because in the Soviet Union it was against the law to climb things, walls or even trees. Well, certainly it was against the law for Stan Mumford to climb things. And that's where it might have stayed, except that a week later, Stan returned to the site of his arrest and, I kid you not, started taking pictures. He was caught again, and this time held for five hours. The Soviet media then declared that the factory where Stan had been detained, now twice, was actually a defense installation. It might have been. We know it was a small machine factory. They also said that the film that was found in his camera was of a special type that's usually used by intelligence agents. The newspapers suggested that Stan Mumford go back to school to study the art of espionage. The CIA report on the festival adds that Radio Moscow also claimed that Stan had confessed, saying that he had taken the pictures for the consular section of the American embassy. Stan Mumford was released and was allowed to leave on time and in the normal way after the festival, likely due to the Soviet authorities determining him not to be a spy, but instead an American teenage doofus. Part 6. Echoes of the Festival In 1958, the CIA's analysis said it first and best. The sixth World Festival of Youth and Students was the largest, costliest, and most spectacular youth gathering in history, 
and as such, must be regarded as a world political event of major significance. And that it was. It was the start of a large-scale diffusion of Western youth culture throughout the Soviet Union. But not just jeans and rock and roll. It was also the first time that many of the young delegates had been exposed to critical thinking and reasonable debate with those from a Western stance. It was ideas in art and music and fashion, yes, but far more dangerously, the Sixth Youth Festival in Moscow introduced a new way of thinking and of questioning authority. It's true that the Soviet Union probably achieved most of the propaganda goals that it had set out to accomplish during the festival, in terms of propaganda. But as the head of Komsomol, Alexander Shalepin, admitted, it had also allowed, quote, penetration into our midst of an ideology, morals, and habits that are alien to us. Much has been made, and continues to be made, about the significance of the Moscow Festival of 1957. Khrushchev's thaw and the increasingly defined youth culture of the 1950s conspired to create a moment in time that would have social implications for the Soviet Union until its final dissolution in 1991. The New York Times offered the opinion that the young people that had gone to the festival were not blind, and that Moscow might take some propaganda defeats along with its victories. Looking back, the greatest defeats weren't in young Westerners walking away from Moscow with eyes open to the faults in the Soviet system. The defeat was in giving the population the ability to reason and question, giving them permission, and then, as quickly as it had begun, trying to suppress that newfound way of looking at the world after Khrushchev under Brezhnev when he rolled back the thaw. But it would never go back to the way it had been before. And during the second thaw, Gorbachev's thaw, 30 years later, called Glasnost, the promise of the 1957 Moscow Youth Festival was realized in full. The sharing of culture, the openness in debate, the flood of new ideas so furious that it simply drowned out the voices of the old guard with catastrophic results for the state. It's just too bad it couldn't last. Summers of love are summers, after all, and winter comes sooner than you might wish, especially in Russia. Thanks for listening to The Vault. If you haven't looked at the Patreon page yet, please do. There are bonus documents, all pulled from the archives by yours truly. A chance to put in your two cents about what you want to hear. And when we get enough patrons, we'll start a monthly raffle of a Cold War artifact. That's patreon.com slash Vault. The best way to help the show grow is to like and review on Apple Podcasts, though it means a lot if you review on any platform you use. 
Follow The Vault on Facebook at Cold War Vault and have a look at the gift shop and library on coldwarvault.com. Long live rock and roll.